sing. Please be seated. We uh, turn back in God's word to 2 Peter chapter 3. The last chapter, I am trying to make a little more progress as uh, we continue working our way through the conclusion, the final chapter here as we consider the coming day of the Lord. To uh, start back at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, reading down to verse 10. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of the Lord the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world then uh, that existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, and both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth and faithfulness that you have given to us in your word. We do pray that as we are students of it, that you would not hide its meaning from us, but indeed hide it in our hearts, that we might always be growing and training, being fed and being led to accomplish all that you have ordained for us. Even in the light of such a day, we pray that we would have uh, wisdom and an understanding of your will in the present time, given that that time is short. We ask it for the glory of your name in Christ our Lord. Amen. You'll know that uh, in still in, in most countries of the world today, at least in the West, when you take an oath of office or when you are sworn in as a witness in court, you end your oath with a phrase, so help me God. In fact, both by English common law and by the laws of many states up until the 20th century, you were not allowed to serve in political office or even to be a witness in court if you did not believe that God would judge the world. You had to at least believe that when you said, so help me God, that you were calling that God to witness on that great day. Well, less than 100 years ago in North Carolina, uh, we read that the, the law requires two guarantees of truth that a witness is about to state. He must be in the fear of punishment by the laws of man 
and by the laws of God. That was a North Carolina statute. Belief in divine judgment was nearly universal and almost universally held to be a virtue. Indeed, it was thought to be that you couldn't have a society if people didn't fear the Lord. What kind of scoundrels and scandals would we get if our politicians didn't fear God? Can you imagine? A belief in divine justice, of course, is not unique to Christianity. Indeed, virtually every religion and every culture in the history of the world, in one way or the other, has believed that our deeds in this life will be judged sometimes here and fully in that uh, hereafter. The Bible celebrates God's righteous judgment in joyful song, as many psalms praise him that one day the Lord will judge in equity and justice all the wrongs made right, and we will dwell in the home of righteousness as we read. Well, in the Bible, it's the great longing and expectation of God's people that one day all the wickedness and injustice which has been inflicted on this world, all the ungodliness and unrighteousness will at last be brought to his bar and uh, all wrongs will then be righted. However, you will know that uh, certainly, especially in the last generation in my lifetime, there's been a tremendous change in belief and sentiment concerning God's judgment. Has there not? Uh, I say it boldly that now in our morally lax, self-righteous, self-excusing culture, God's judgment of the world is regarded as a great scandal, a barrier to belief, even among some, a moral outrage. I had a man tell me, who does God think he is, in all seriousness, to judge the world? Well, people may go on to mischaracterize God's judgment as though God were unjust, not them. But it is true that it seems that now one of the great modern stumbling blocks to Christianity, especially among those who are drawn to the idea of a loving and compassionate God, is the Bible's teaching on judgment, which is very plain. Many people today have a hard time believing that God would judge the world in righteousness. Who does he think he is? Now, this is not a new problem, of course, even if there has been a change of sentiment in our day. This is the way it was before Christianity came into the world. Tertullian, in the second century, wrote, we get ourselves laughed at for proclaiming that God will one day judge the world. They couldn't believe it either. And what the second century had in common with the 21st century is this, that people were living for the present. That's why Americans don't believe that there's a judgment to come. They put all thought of the future out of their mind. I mean, we don't, we don't even do a very good job saving money for the future. Matter of fact, our politicians, to please us, without thought of how difficult it will be for our children to repay, borrow a staggering amount of money from the next generation. And I can obviously go on. But we tend to live for the moment, is the point. Just like the people in the second century. We ignore the consequences of the future and even talk ourselves out of it as though there were none. This is a bad attitude with regard to borrowing money as a state, but it is a fatal attitude, spiritually speaking, because the Bible often reminds us that the significance and measurement of your life and mine is not today. It's on that day, that great day that God will judge the world. Then, and only then, will we be able truly to see what a life is made of. Now, Woody Allen, whom I don't usually quote, right, uh, he described his method of writing 
uh, plays and screenplays like this. He said, the trick is to start at the ending when you write a play. Get a good, strong ending, and then write backwards. Well, his point is not merely a technical one for writers. He was admitting, as many of his screenplays seem to be designed to demonstrate, that unless you have a purposeful, satisfying ending in human drama, everything else just seems like a story told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And the second coming of Christ is the conclusion to the divine story. It is the event that gives meaning to human existence. And all the hopes and longings of this world are fulfilled. Uh, of course, it has, it's a very bad thing for those that are under God's wrath, but for, for we that have waited for him, uh, we have longed for this day with great eagerness when at last all that we have desired will come to promise, come to fruition. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien once called the second coming of Christ the eucatastrophe, eucatastrophe, that is the good catastrophe. Um, Yes, an unimaginable catastrophe for the ungodly world. But for us, the fulfillment of every hope and every dream, for those who love and long for the Lord Jesus. And on that day, wrongs righted, the people of the earth receiving a judgment in perfect accord with what they have done. And we will be with him forever, as we read again, in the home of righteousness. So, in Peter's day, poor and persecuted as they were, they longed for this day. They were inspired by their anticipation that Jesus was coming back. Oh, they could taste it. You know, they, they, they would memorize those verses. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were longing for that day, as Paul calls it again elsewhere, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, of course, as we know better than them, that day seemed to be a long time in coming. Yeah? Now, Jesus had prepared his disciples for a long delay. He had explained it to them and told them parables like the, the master who was going on a long journey and was slow in returning, and that that delay tempted some of his servants to misbehave, which was, of course, precisely what was happening in the church to whom Peter writes. They had succumbed to that temptation. The Lord had delayed, and now we read and. Uh, in chapter 2, we read of Peter's warnings about these people that had started, perhaps, on the path and professed to know Christ as their Savior and Lord, knowing the way of righteousness, but had never been changed within. And now, like washed pigs, he says very colorfully, they have returned to wallowing in the mire. Following their lusts, but proclaiming freedom in Christ, they are, in fact, slaves of corruption." So now, here in chapter 3, we find one reason why they excuse themselves to behave so wickedly. They're saying, look, he's not coming back to judge. They're denying the Lord's judgment of the world. Now, be mindful, Peter says. We warned you that in these last days, um, a biblical phrase that describes the, the time of Messiah, right? From their day, even until ours. That in these last days, scoffers will come walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And it's a good question. And even as Christians, not scoffing, but we do wonder, why is it taking so long? Why is God delayed? 
Why hasn't Christ returned as he promised? We start to think maybe those false teachers at least had this much right. It, it, it certainly seems like things have been going on as they always have. Where is the Lord's promise to return? Well, these matters are before us in the passage today. As Peter gives answers, he tells us first, you know, God has judged the world. And second, that uh, God is not slack in judgment. I like the old translation, not slack in judgment. And third, God will judge when the time is right. So let's consider these, these three from the passage and what it uh, signifies to us. First, God has judged the world. So the false teachers are saying, verse 4, hey, where is the promise of his coming? You know, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That's not true, Peter says. In fact, it was just a few generations after that creation that the world that then existed, verse 6, perished, being flooded with water. Yeah, we read back in Genesis 6 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt and all flesh had corrupted their way. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But Noah found grace and you know what happened. Um, Well, some people just can't believe that God would actually judge the whole world and everybody in it except for those in Christ. Peter says, that won't be the first time. In that day, God saved eight people from among the inhabitants of the earth. And, of course, even then, we could also add, it did take a while to come. It surely came but it it certainly took its time coming. In the case of Noah, I mean, um, he had to endure all those years of just misery and violence in the earth. And then after he told them that that he was going to be saved, it was 120 years or so uh, building an ark and waiting for the Lord. uh, It seemed to take quite a long time for that judgment to come. Or we could think of the wickedness of Canaan, despite God's manifest judgments on Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, fire from heaven consuming the cities. Well, that wasn't enough warning for them. Um, 400 years later, their violence and immorality finally made them ripe for judgment. And when there was no hope left, God said, okay, now the time is over. Do not spare man or woman, boy or girl. Not even an animal, right? It is an end. And this judgment is to be a prefiguring of that great judgment to come. So, the story is told of the atheist farmer who ridiculed Christians and wrote a letter to the local newspaper, scoffing, I plowed on Sunday, I planted on Sunday, I cultivated on Sunday, and I hauled in my crops on Sunday. I never went to church on Sunday. Yet I have harvested more bushels per acre than anyone else, even those who are God-fearing and never miss a service. Well, the editor of the newspaper did print the man's letter, but he did add a remark at the bottom saying, quote, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. 
sometimes it takes a while that, for that judgment to come. But the Lord does settle his accounts. And when he does, it's a fearful thing. Now, in, in Peter's previous letter, he had written about the Lord's sudden coming. And apparently some people thought that meant he was coming very, very soon. Um, but sudden and soon are not the, the same thing. The truth is, Peter has no idea when the Lord is coming, only that it will not be in his lifetime. He knows for certain, he mentions that elsewhere, uh, the Lord told him that, uh, John. He, he mentions that in chapter 1. Um, I, I know that I'm not going to be around. So besides that, uh, what the Lord had made clear to him, he doesn't know when the Lord is coming back. But what he does want to communicate is, the Lord is not slow. It will be swift. And that's a different thing. Swift like, like the thief who comes at an hour that you do not expect, or as Jesus puts it, you know, it was just like before the flood. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, giving in marriage. But then that day came when Noah entered the ark, and they didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Swift and soon are not the same. So Peter does not say when the Lord is coming, but says that it comes upon them unexpectedly, all of a sudden, like a thief. Now, we don't have to fear. He goes on to say in verse 12, we're looking forward to that day. And since we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, verse 14, we are to make every effort to be blameless and at peace with him, bearing in mind our Lord's patience means salvation and so forth. Okay, the simple point here that I want to emphasize, though, is that the God who made the world and who brought it all to judgment once in such a dramatic and sudden way will surely do it again. And you cannot argue in principle, oh, God's not like that. He's done it before with water. He will do it again because those same heavens and earth that are preserved by the same word, he says, verse 7, are going to be reserved for fire on that day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So, uh, that day is coming. French atheist Voltaire scoffed at the idea of judgment. Even as he lay on his deathbed, he was scoffing. The, the lampshade next to his bedside uh, caught, caught fire from the candle. And uh, he joked, what, the flames already? Uh, certainly not, 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 not funny. Scorning Christianity to his dying breath. Uh, just not believing that uh, the flames could await such as him. But, well, God had the last word, I suppose. Voltaire's house in Paris is now the office of the French Bible Society, and uh, Voltaire has been all but forgotten. Well, nobody can deny, in principle, that the world will be judged by God. He's done it before. He will do it again. But now there's this second matter that we need to take up about this delay Point two, God is not slack in judgment. Verse eight, beloved, don't forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is this a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. So, as I said earlier, the false teachers were kind of making fun of this, that the Lord had not returned. But it wasn't just the false teachers that needed to be dealt with. He has to speak to the Christians. These, these early Christians, as every generation since then, have been perhaps disappointed 
maybe even confused by the fact that the Lord had not yet come. Now, he's, the Lord said, nobody's going to know the day or the hour, but that doesn't, has not prevented many from assuming, yeah, but it must be soon. It's got to be in this generation. Just look around, right? It seems like a rite of passage for every Christian at some time to be expecting the second coming in their lifetimes, only then to realize toward the end of their life it's not to be. Well, here we are some 2,000 years later, and still the Lord hasn't come. And what are we to think about this? Why hasn't the Lord returned after all this time? Peter offers two reasons why the Lord had not yet come. Two important reasons. The first, more theological. You know, God is eternal, he says. He's not bound to time as we are. I mean... We, we hardly even know what this means, but our existence, yours and mine, is just completely bound to what Einstein, Einstein called space-time, right? These four dimensions that are the fabric of our universe. We, we are part of that and connected to that. And uh, even that actually is somewhat fluid, as, as movies like Planet of the Apes or Interstellar and others have pointed out, you know, both space and time are kind of fluid. They're bent by mass. They're affected by velocity. I mean, we only live at this moment that we feel, and so we can feel something like a delay, but God is in no way bound by the four dimensions of the universe. It's all before him, just as this desk is before me. I mean, it's, the whole thing is present before me. Space and time are to God like this desk is before me. And, um, that one side of the desk is not any further away than the other side of the desk. Uh, God is not waiting around. God is, <coughs> God, is, God is not biding his time or anything like that. For the, as far as the Lord is concerned, a day is as a thousand years. It's all the same before him. God has before him all that history means, all where it's been, all where it's going, all that it will finally lead to. And Peter's point is that Christ's return may seem slow to us, but not to God, whose perspective is radically different than ours. Um, as far as the Bible itself is concerned, the Scriptures regularly, repeatedly prepare us, you know, for a long delay before the promises of God are fulfilled. I mean, even though we don't know the day or the hour, there are many references to the fact that it's, it's going to take a while. There's going to be this delay. And because of the delay, many people are going to stumble, as a matter of fact. And in the meantime, the Scripture prepares us for death. Do you realize that? Um, it presumes, the Bible presumes, that most of its readers are going to die before the Lord returns. And there's classic statements on the death of the saints, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. I mean, that's to be most, most people's experience. Uh, we know that if this earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a, a house made without hands, uh, eternal in the heavens. We're confident. Yes, we're well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That was Paul's expectation. That's our expectation. The Lord could return, but... You know, it, it prepares us for death and how 
good it is to have such promises. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. In fact, many of those passages that speak about death don't even raise any possibility that death won't be our experience, even though we know that there will be, of course, a generation of believers who will be alive when Jesus comes. Paul covers that in some places, Thessalonians, other places. But clearly that's the exception very long lengths of time have characterized the fulfillment of God's promises from the beginning, right? I mean, this is God's way. He speaks about the seed of the woman who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. And he didn't appear for thousands of years. The king that was going to come from Judah's line, it took two millennia for that promise to be fulfilled. Even the possession of the promised land took centuries and centuries from the first promise of the land to Abraham. That prophet like Moses didn't make his appearance for more than 1,400 years after he was described. And the king promised to David was another 1,000 years. And so we've been waiting for the second coming, what, for 2,000 years. It's difficult in some ways for us to understand, but... Every believer before you has had to wait. All their lives they've had to wait. And in every case, the promise had been fulfilled and as it will be for us. And that's the key point. It may take, from our perspective, a long time. But God has it all before him. The past, the the present, the future, what it means, the best time, the right order, it's all before him. He is not slack he surely has it all accomplished. Now, I also should point out briefly that that, that verse about a thousand years and a day and so forth, that, that had been misinterpreted by some who were trying to predict the Lord's second coming, the date of it and so forth, and there was this widespread expectation. I mean, the year 999 in Rome was crazy, right? As people expected the Lord to return in the year 1000, right? Uh, which was not what Peter was saying, but Christians have always made it a practice to go and find timetables and passages that were never intended to convey them. There are no time charts in the Bible. We cannot know. But there is a striking fact that people have had a fascination with times and seasons and that virtually every generation is sure that theirs will see the end of the world and that people are doing the same thing today that they have done for all these centuries finding ways of putting dates on the prophecies only to confuse themselves more. The affirmation of the Bible is simply, God is not slack in judgment. He has it all figured out. As far as he's concerned, the beginning and the end is all before him. It's already, as it were, done. We're just now working out all those purposes. Well, finally... God will judge when the time is right. And this is more important for us, practically speaking, I think. End of verse 9. The Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This delay, he goes on to say, means salvation. The long-suffering of our Lord, verse 15, is salvation. So Peter's second reason why the Lord has not yet come after such a long time, a lot longer for us than for them, is a compelling reason. 
that God desires his salvation to go forth into all the world. And this and many other passages remind us of God's purpose in Christ for man's salvation, that in him, what was the promise to Abraham? In him, all the families of the earth should be blessed. We read this morning how we as ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. God is not taking any delight in men's wicked rebellion, but as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he turn from his way and live. Turn! Why should you die? Oh, he will allow man to rebel. He allows, he says, uh, Acts 17, you know, there was a time when he let nations go their own way. But that time is over. The word goes out to the nations, and he is fixed today when he will judge the world in righteousness. So get going, he says. You bring them the word, and they will believe. For Christ has purchased redeemed men for God out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And God's purpose is that the praise of God should encircle the earth and that there ought to be then at the end of that great day uh, all the families of the earth represented by blessed salvation. Well, we may be impatient for the Lord's return, but we of all people, I think, should be grateful that here in these ends of the earth, the Lord has at least waited until we were saved, right? Um, I mean, here we are. If, if the Lord had come in the year 1900, how many millions of believers in South America and Africa and Asia would never be uh, there around the throne of the Lamb? And so those who are saying today that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know. There are more Christians alive in the world today than have ever lived. I mean, that's remarkable. I don't know if that's true or, or not, but you consider the hundreds of millions of new believers in this past half century. And would we really want Christ to have not had all that glory? Um, I read a few years ago that there are more Chinese people alive than dead. Right? It's just a population explosion. And what a good time for that to happen now that the gospel is going forth in power among them in that, in so many ways, still dark nation. We desire the greatest possible glory for God and for Christ our Savior and God's desire for a multitude whom no man could number of believers to be praising that great name that is above every name, that all the families of the earth should be blessed in him. Here is, I think, the more compelling reason for us that we have had to wait. Peter's reasons are uh, uh, these, uh, on, on the one hand, you know, God's not in time, and it's more theological, right? Uh, we, we only see moment by moment. We, 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 so, we see so little what's happening in the world. God is not slow. He's working it all out. Um, that's the first thing. But the second is, God will have all the families of the earth to be blessed in Jesus, as he promised Abraham. And God is delaying, but that means the world's salvation. And we, therefore, practically speaking, should be at work. And seeking the salvation of others, imploring people on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. One, once when uh, Dwight Moody was in England, he said, 
We want enthusiasm in God's work. That is to say, we lack enthusiasm in God's work. We find it in the world. Men are desperately in earnest in business circles, and hell is earnest. Why should we not be? And I'll leave you with that question as an end of point three. Well, we've considered the basic matters of the coming day of the Lord. More is to be said. I'll simply conclude now by saying that any human life that's not being lived in view of that day, the day in which all things will be brought to judgment, that is a life gone awry because that day gives meaning to every other day of human history. And the reasons that these false teachers were mocking Christian belief in Christ's return was because they were mocking the whole idea of such a judgment. Well, who cares whether it's coming tomorrow or a thousand years from now? The point is, we will all be there very soon. And that day uh, is the difference between blessing and woe. Every human being will be there, and eternity hangs in the balance for that great day of the Lord. So I conclude uh, praying with you a prayer that I found in the Valley of Vision that spoke well to this. Let's pray together. O Lord, turn our hearts from vanity, from dissatisfactions and uncertainties of our present state, and to an eternal interest in Christ. Let us remember how this life is short and unforeseen and an opportunity for usefulness. Give us a holy passion to redeem this time, to awaken every call to charity and piety, that we may diffuse the gospel and show neighborly love to all. May we live a life of self-distrust but dependence upon your Spirit and Christ.